If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese, and today our guest is Peter Cahill. He is the CEO over at Voices. He holds an undergraduate degree in computer science from the Dublin Institute of Technology and a PhD in the field of computer science text-to-speech from University College Dublin. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hey, thanks. Looking forward to it. Well, I always like to start with the question, what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a tough question. Um, I think it's as time passes, it's getting increasingly more difficult to define it. Um, like I think, you know, some years ago, people would use artificial intelligence and essentially pattern matching kind of, it kind of meant the same thing. And I think in more recent years, as technologies have progressed, sizes of data sets are, you know, many times bigger. And compute power is obviously a whole lot better as well as, as our technology is developing that. I think these days people are actually, it, it can be really hard to draw that line. Um, some time ago, maybe a year ago, I think, um, I was chairing a panel on speech synthesis. And one of the panelists, one of the questions I had for the panelists in general was, you know, can computers, in, in theory, could computers ever speak in a more human way or in a, you know, uh, in a way better than humans? Because we've seen many of these, you know, over time we've seen, you know, computers can do computer vision better than people. Um, computers can do speech recognition better than people. And it's always in, you know, in a certain context and on a certain data set. Um, but still, we're starting to see computers outperforming people in various cases. So I asked this question to the panel, um, you know, could, could computers speak better than people? And I think one of the panelists, as far as I recall, um, said that he believed they could. And the, what would, had that be realized, would be that if a computer could not just sound perfectly human, but also could be more convincing than, a, than your average person would be, um, then the computer would speak better than a person. Um, and I think on the back of that, then to ask kind of, you know, what's the artificial part of artificial intelligence, it does seem that as time passes and these technologies continue to progress, that answering, you know, really having a good definition on that just becomes increasingly difficult. Um, so I'm afraid I don't have a good definition for, for you for it, um, but I think it's eventually it'll just be, it'll just people will just start referring to it as intelligence. So, you know, it's interesting because when Turing did put out the Turing test and, you know, he was trying to answer the question, can a machine think? And he said that, and everybody knows what the Turing test is. Can you tell whether you're talking to a person or a computer? And he said something interesting. He said that if the computer can ever get you to pick it, oh, I don't know, 30%, 40% of the time, you have to say it's thinking. And so, you know, you have to ask, well, why wasn't that 50-50? And of course, the question he was asking is not whether a computer can think better than a person, but whether they uh, can, you know, think at all. But the interesting question is what you just touched on, which is if the computer ever gets picked 51% of the time, then the conclusion is what you just alluded to. It's better at seeming human than we are. So do you think in that context 
of artificial intelligence, and I don't want to you know belabor it, but do you think it's artificial like it's like artificial turf really isn't grass? Like, is it really intelligent or is it able to fake it so well that it seems intelligent? Or do you do you find anything meaningful in that distinction? I, th- I think it's there. There is a chance that as as our understanding of of how the human brain works uh, develops, in addition to as what people currently call artificial intelligence, as that develops, um, that you know eventually there may be some overlap. And like I, I do, I think even myself and a lot of others don't really like the term artificial neural networks or neural networks because they're quite different to the human brain. Even, they, even though they may be inspired by how the human brain works. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if eventually we ended up at a point of understanding how the human brain works to the extent that it no longer seems as magically intelligent as it does to us today. Um, and I think probably what we will see happening is as machines get better and better at artificial intelligence, that it may become almost like if something seems too natural or too good, um, then people would assume maybe that it came from a machine and not a person. For example, if probably actually a really good example is if you consider video games today, um, that you know we have this artificial intelligence in video games, which is really not um, intelligent at all. Um, in, the, in the you know, for example, if you take a, a random uh, first-person shooter type of game where the artificial intelligence is trying to seem very kind of, you know, they make lots of mistakes. They move very slowly. Um, if you really try to power modern, you know, a modern video game of really state-of-the-art artificial intelligence, the human player wouldn't stand a chance um, just because the AI will be so accurate and so much faster and so much more strategic in what it was doing. Um, and I think we'll kind of see stuff like that, you know, across the spectrum of AI where, if, you know, machines can be really, really, really good at what they're doing. And as time passes, they'll just continuously get better whereas people are always kind of starting from scratch. So working up the, the, the chain from the brain, which, you, you know, you said we, we may get to a point where we understand it well enough that our intelligence looks like artificial intelligence, if, if I'm understanding you correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, yeah. there's a notion above it, which is the mind, and then the consciousness. But just talking about the mind for a minute, the mind is... There's all the stuff your brain can do that doesn't seem like something an organ should be able to do. Like, you know, you have a sense of humor, but your liver does not have a sense of humor. Uh, and so where, like, where does that come from? What do you think? Where do you think these kind of amazing abilities of the brain, and I'm not even talking about consciousness, I'm just talking about things we can do. Where do you think they come from? Do you have a, like even a gut instinct? Are they emergent? Are they, are, like, what are they? I yeah it's it's obviously it's, it would just be a guess really but I would think that as if we end up with AIs that are as complex or even more complex and more capable than the human brain then we're going to probably see various artifacts on the side of that which may resemble you know what we you know these types of things you're talking about right now um, and I think maybe to some extent you know if, I think right now people draw this distinction between AI and intelligence because the human brain still has so many unknowns about it. It appears to be kind of almost magic in that way, whereas AI is very well understood exactly what it's doing and why. Um, even if, say, models are too big to really be able to understand the inner work, you know, the, exactly why they're making certain decisions, the, you know, the algorithms of them are very well understood. 
So let me ask a different question. You know, a lot of people I have on the show don't, there's a lot of disagreement about like how soon we're going to get a general intelligence. So um, let me just ask a really kind of really straightforward question, which is some people think we're going to get a general intelligence soon, five, 10, 15 years. Some people think an AGI is as far out as 500 years. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, yeah, I think it's as soon as we can put a time on it, um, it'll happen incredibly quickly. And right now, it's today's technologies are not sufficient to be generally intelligent. Um, but I would think what's kind of what we've seen even in general um, in AI in, the, in recent years is that as now, pretty much every company out there is trying to develop their AI strategy, um, building out AI teams or working with other companies that work in AI. Um, I think the number of people working in AI as a field has increased dramatically, and that will cause progress to happen far quicker than it would have otherwise happened. So let me ask a different variant of the question, which is, do you think we are on an evolutionary path to build? Is the, is the technology evolving and it gets a little better, 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 and then one day it's an AGI? Or like the guest I had on the show yesterday said, no, what we're doing today isn't really anything like an AGI. And that's a whole different piece of technology. We haven't even started working on that yet. We're just building these, yeah, these, you know. I'd say that, that that's correct, but the different, you know, the leap. It's it's not going to be an iteration of what we currently have, um, but it may just be a very small piece of technology that we don't currently have. When combined with everything that we do currently have, makes it possible. So, let's talk about that. So, mm -hmm. people who think that we're going to get an AGI relatively soon often think that intelligence, is, that there is a master algorithm that. There is a generalized, unsupervised learner we can build. You can just point it at the internet, and it's going to know all there is to know. Then other people say, no, intelligence is a kludge. Our brains are only intelligent because they, we do a thousand different things, and they're all cognitive biases. All this messy spaghetti code is all we really are. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, I, I think currently it's there's no algorithms out there that kind of even suggest it could be generally intelligent. Um, I, I think it's even as it is, even if there was one minor breakthrough in that space, it would have a very dramatic you know, knock-on effect and it would, then people would start you know, believing it, it was only a number of years away. Um, as it is right now, if it happened in five years, I honestly would not be surprised. If it happened in 15, I wouldn't be surprised. Or if it happened in 50, it's just right now we're, we're at least one breakthrough, one major breakthrough away from, from that happening. But that could happen at any point. Um, could it never happen? In theory, yes, but I, in practice, it's, I'd, I'd, be, I'd guess that it will. So one argument that says that it may be, just like you're suggesting, a straightforward, you know, break, one breakthrough away, says that, you know, the human genome, which is the formula for building a general intelligence and that mm -hmm. does a whole lot of other stuff, is say 700 meg, but the part that we're different than say a, a chimp is just 1% of that, 7 meg-ish. And so mm -hmm. the, the logical leap is that there might just be a small little thing that's a small amount of code, because uh, even in that 7 meg, a bunch of it's not you know, expressing proteins and all of that, that it might just be something really simple. But do you, do you think that that is anything more than an analogy? Is that actually a proof point? Um, 
I would say I would expect it to be something along them lines. Like it's even today, I think you could take the vast majority of deep learning algorithms and you could represent them all in less than a meg um, of data. Um, and so it's, you know, many of these algorithms, you know, many of these algorithms are fairly straightforward formula uh, when they're, you know, implemented in the right way. They, they do what we currently call deep learning or whatever. Um, and so I would imagine, you know, it's, I don't think it's a, we're that many major leaps away from having an artificial general intelligence. We're just, I think right now we're just missing the first step on that path. And once something does emerge, um, there's going to be thousands, tens of thousands of people all around the globe who will start working on it immediately. And so we'll see a very quick rate of progress as a result, in addition to it just learning by itself anyway. Okay, so just a couple more questions along these lines, and we'll, we'll get back to the hearing now. There's a group of people, and I mean, you know all the names, uh, high-profile individuals who say that such a thing is a scary prospect, you know, existential threat, summoning the demon, uh, last cre- the last invention, uh, you, you know all of, all of it. Do you yep. think that that is, in fact, and then you get the other people. You get, you know, Andrew Ng, and it's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, uh, Zuckerberg, yep. who says flat out it's not a threat. Why, first, two questions. Where are you on the, the fear spectrum? And two, why do you think these people, all very intelligent people, have such wildly different opinions about whether this is a good or bad thing? Um, so I think I think eventually, you know, it will get to a point where it has to become, or at least certain applications of it will have to become um, a threat or dangerous in some way. Um, there's nothing on the horizon that, you know, is is that you know that's really kind of again down the path of general intelligence, which nobody has right now. And um, I think the, you know, eventually it will it will go that way as many technologies do. Um, and it's really no one really knows how to manage it or handle it there have been calls by some people to you know regulate ai in some way but realistically ai is a technology it's not a you know it's not an industry and it's not a product um and so can how to you know you can regulate an industry but it's very very hard to regulate a technology especially when outside of your own country's borders other countries don't need to regulate it um and so there's a very good chance you know if it's going to be developed it's going to probably be developed by many countries not just one um, especially within a few years of each other, um, and so I'm not too sure if there's any. Even if even if everybody unanimously agreed that you know in a, in a 100 years time it was going to become a threat, I'm not too sure that it could be stopped even already because you know there's so many people working on it across different countries all over the globe. Um, it's not there's no amount of regulation in any single country um that could stop it. and even right now you know regulation isn't a barrier the technologies don't even exist to do it to begin with so let's let's talk about you for a minute can you uh bring um bring us up to date like how how did you come um how did voices come about how did you decide to enter into this field why did you specialize in text-to-speech can you just talk a little bit about your journey sure so i, I started working in text-to-speech in 2002 um, so 15 years ago, and I think at the time, I, what really attracted me to it was that it was a very difficult problem. You know, many people had worked on it for decades, and especially back then, uh, computer voices sounded incredibly robotic. Um, and then even kind of when I looked into it in more detail, what made it, I guess, even more interesting is many machine learning problems tend to be kind of classification problems where, you know, they'd input a large amount of data and then output a, you know, a small, about it, a small amount of data in the output. So, for example, if you're doing 
image classification today, you know, the, the size of data you have in images um, is far greater than the final result you get out of the model, which may just tell you, you know, this is a picture of a car or something like this. And so we didn't put huge amounts of data and output something just very small. And text-to-speech is the extreme opposite of that, where the amount of input is just, you know, a few characters. Um, and from that, the system has to generate this human-sounding waveform. Um, and in the case of the human-sounding waveform, if even a small amount of that data is slightly off, um, the human ear will notice it very, very easily because we're not trained on, you know, we're, we're completely used to listening to human voices and we're not used to listening to, you know, distorted signals from generated by machines. And so it's just, a, I guess it's the opposite of a very, of, a, of the traditional machine learning problem where it's kind of being creative. Given a very small amount of data, it needs to create a whole lot more. And so that's kind of where I started off originally working on my PhD. Um, after it, I became faculty in the university I was in and uh, was remained faculty for several years. And then eventually I, I resigned as faculty to start Voices, um, where I think at the time that was, I'd always said I'd like to open a company at some point. And I think at that time in particular, we saw the likes of Google, Apple, Microsoft, and so on. All of them went on an acquisition spree. And they acquired many of the smaller companies that had this technology, um, regardless of what country they were from. And I think the knock-on side effect of that was that there was pretty much no independent providers anymore. So, you know, if, and even what them companies were going to use these platforms for was very consumer-facing applications, which, you know, like we have today with Google Home and Amazon Echo. Um, but, you know, for other businesses out there who want to have a voice interface in their products, you know, where their users can speak directly to their product and interact with them, um, there was no, pretty much the companies who could have provided that were all acquired by these big platform companies. And so that's really what motivated me to start Voices. And since then, we, you know, we built out Voices as a complete voice AI platform, which uh, normally when we say that, what, what we mean is that all of the technologies to power these systems, so the speech recognition, the text-to-speech, the natural language understanding, the dialogue management, and so on, all of the technologies were built in-house here in Voices. And what we do is we partner with companies in select verticals that we feel are both ready for voice and consumers within that space uh, will benefit greatly from having a voice interface. Um, and we build out products you know, within defined verticals where you know, we do a lot of user studies on how do consumers want to interact with these devices and you know, build out the whole user experience to deliver you know, really high quality uh, voice interactions integrated directly um, in third-party businesses' products. So looking at um, at your website, I mean, I noticed you have a wide, you have linguists, you have a wide range of specialists in your company. And then watching your, your demo stuff, it just seems to me that what you're trying to do or what the field breaks down into are four, four things that I think you just ran through them. So one of them is emulating human speech. One of them is simply recognizing the word that I'm saying one of them is the third one is understanding those words mm-hmm. and what I, and then the fourth one is managing the dialogue of, of what pronouns are standing for what thing and all of that. Did I miss any of it? Um, yeah, I'd say that, that that's it in a nutshell. Although okay. in, in practice we don't, we don't really draw a line between um, recognizing words and understanding that in the case of the voices platform, what we do is, audio would go in and after it's passed through several models, um, the understanding components come out. So we never transcribe it into text first because 
that's kind of a it's an approach I think that many companies are moving away from because if you transcribe it into text first, you tend to accumulate error from speech recognition. But when you try to understand it, if there's errors in the transcription, and um, you can never really recover from it. Gotcha. But just as underlying technologies, like because I would love to just look at each one of them in isolation. So one of them is I call my airline. Let's do that second one first, which is just understanding what I am saying. I call my airline of choice. And I, I say my frequent flyer number, which unfortunately has an A, an H, and an 8 in it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A-A-H-H-H-8-8-8. You know, that's not it. But, and it never gets it. I mean, you know, I shouldn't say that. But if, if everything's really quiet and I really, you know, it eventually gets it. Why is it so bad? I, um, so there, there's probably multiple things at play there. So if you're talking to them over a... Of, over a phone line, um, phone signals are generally quite distorted and it makes it much more difficult for speech recognition to work well. Um, but there's also a very good chance that the speech recognition engine they're using behind that was a general speech recognition engine built for any random use case as opposed to one that was designed you know, to work on telephone calls, maybe even with, with some knowledge of the use cases around where it was going to be used. Because it only needs to recognize 36 things, right? 20, 26 letters and 10 numbers. Sure, it, but it was, that, that speech recognition engine may have not been built to recognize them things, which is probably why it struggles with it. And so like, historically, what would most companies, uh, you know, not voices, but many others, tend to build a single speech recognition engine that they try to use in many different situations. And that's generally where accuracy tends to really suffer because... Without, you know, if you don't build a system with any context on exactly how it's going to be used, um, it's a much more difficult task for it. You know, it's it's a much more difficult task to do a hundred things well than it is to do one. That's essentially I, the Achilles heel of, of it. I guess also, unlike dialogue, it doesn't get any clues about what the next letter or number should be from anything prior to it, right? Um, there is that, but I think in that case, you. You know, if if you're just listing, you know, letters and numbers, there's not that many of them. Um, it's, you know, that, that right, should work quite well, I think. In the sentence, the boy, the, the cat ran up the, you know, there's a finite number of things the cat can run yeah. up. Um, what, what I don't get, I mean, as an aside, is I call from the same number every time, and you would think they would have mastered caller ID by now. But... Uh, so let's talk a little bit about understanding. So anytime I come across a Turing test kind of like, you know, a chatbot, a chatbot, I always ask the same question, which is what's larger, a nickel or the sun? And I haven't found any system that can answer that question. Why is that? So generally, the, like the modern technologies that are used for chatbots is, I think it's still relatively immature in comparison to the technologies behind speech recognition and text-to-speech and so on. And so chatbots really only work well when they're custom-designed and custom-built for you know, a particular use case. If you ask them general questions like that, it won't align much, you know, it won't align closely to what they were trained on or built on. Um, and as a result of that, you, you'll get random answers essentially from it, um, or it'll, you know, it'll just struggle to work. And so I think uh, the chatbot-type technology is still very immature. Um, because it requires a you know a deeper understanding and a deeper intelligence, and um, whereas if you know if you define a chatbot say for for e-commerce in particular, um, 
And if people ask it e-commerce related queries, modern technologies can handle that extremely well. Um, but if you, you know, once you go outside of the domain it was designed for, it'll, it will really struggle because it's, these technologies are not at that level yet uh, where they could handle, you know, switching like that. So when they do contests to, of, to try to evaluate things that might someday pass the Turing test, they're always highly constrained. Like you're saying, they always say you can't ask about, you know, all of these different things. So do you believe that to get a system that I could, I could ask it, uh, you know, any kind of question I want and it will answer it, does that require a general intelligence? Or, or not? Are we going to be able to kludge that up just with existing techniques on enough data? It's yeah. It's, it's the, I think the problem isn't really about data. It's modern techniques aren't good, good enough to do, you know, to handle any kind of completely random query a user might say to it. Um, data helps in, in certain ways, and as does you know new technologies that are emerging. Um, but to have something that you know, because that is kind of a general intelligence you're talking about where it can under, understand language, you know, so, regardless of use case or context. So you don't think we are in the process of building that now to, to harken back to the earlier part of our conversation and that we shouldn't hold our breath for anything like Jarvis, uh, anything like C-3PO, anything... Anything like that, any time, uh, maybe in, you know, for decades. Um, so, so I would say that I've, I've seen no, nothing that would suggest to me that that's going to happen any time in the next few years. Um, and it's normally I do keep up on literature and academic journals and so on. I still review many of them, and there's nothing on the horizon that I've seen that would suggest that. I do think modern technologies are still improving in a more iterative way where you wouldn't say something completely random to it, but they're becoming less rigid. So if you think of a, the way you may interact with a, a Google Home or Echo or Siri, um, currently it's in a very kind of prescribed way where you need to know what words you can say to it in what order to make it do what you want it to do. Um, and things are getting, you know, technologies are getting better at being a bit more fuzzy about that. So people can talk to them in a more natural way. Um, but still, you know, it's they're still being designed around you know, certain use cases as opposed to being completely general and being able to handle, you know, any kind of request. So talk to me about uh, dialogue management, that whole, that whole thing. Where are we with that? Like once you understand the words that the person has said, is that a relatively easy problem to solve or is that also another one that's particularly tricky? Um, I, th I think dialogue is probably the most tricky problem there is right now. Um, it's what makes dialogue really, really difficult is context. So you, you know you can collect a very large data set of how people interact with the system, um, but in, in all cases, you know it's the context could go back several turns. You could you know somebody could have said something ten commands ago or ten sentences ago that's now become relevant again. Um, and I think just that kind of that general context around dialogue. Is what makes it quite difficult. Um, whereas, you know, for example, for speech recognition, people would generally just consider, you know, all sentences are independent, and that way it's very easy to, even if you're collecting data, it's very easy to collect a large data set where people are saying loads of independent sentences. Whereas in the case of dialogue, if 
if you need to have you know the full context prescribed in your data set, you know of everything that happened before, everything that happened after, and um, it just means the task of even collecting data is far more difficult. Understanding the data is far more difficult. Um, technologies are developing on that front. I think uh, reinforcement learning, which you're probably familiar with, um, it looks really promising there, and it, it seems to be developing at a fairly quick pace um, in that use case. Um, but I think the the real key with dialogue and making dialogue systems work well. Uh, will be people need to talk to them in, 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 I guess, in kind of more natural way than they currently do, whereas many companies' current approaches to dialogue is about collecting data, train a system, deploy it. Um, for dialogue to work well, I think we need to have dialogue systems that can learn on the fly. Um, so as people interact with them, the dialogue systems will learn how to be a better dialogue system. And then maybe after enough interactions, which may initially be kind of bad interactions, um, but after enough of them, the system will learn and do a much better job of it. And I think so... Modern technologies can do that, um, but we don't. We tend not to see many of them systems deployed publicly. So, again, if you you know if you speak to your Amazon Echo or something, it, they're really it's really built around having independent instructions that are not really connected to something you said a few sentences ago, where you couldn't have a chat with it. You can just give it a command and tell it what to do, um, but it doesn't really come back and interact with you in any meaningful way. So I, I've had a couple of uh, guests on the show from China who both said variants of the same thing, which is um, in China, because you have a much bigger character set to deal with, mm-hmm. they've had to do voice recognition earlier and put a lot more energy into it, and therefore they're ahead in it in the sense that compared to other languages. Um, how How... First of all, is that your experience? Are there languages that that we do better at it than others? And 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 second, how generalizable is the technology across multiple languages? Like once you master it in Russian, does can you apply that to you know another language easily? So there's there's a few approaches to this. I think the barrier for languages generally tends to be about acquiring good data. And um, so acquiring loads of data is very easy, um, but you need to have good data. So if you're if you're building a speech recognition system where you're expecting people to speak to it um, via cell phones, um, you want to record a data set of people speaking you know, in a, in a very kind of similar way um, as they would in a deployed application, um, but speaking through cell phones. And so generally doing that, you know, that's generally a big manual process that many companies do and um, where they'll record maybe tens of thousands of people, maybe more, um, you know, saying in commands through various different cell phone models and they'll collect all the data and then train off that. And that's that's generally the barrier. Um, the technologies themselves that are used in the Chinese systems or um, like invoices, we do some stuff with Chinese as well. Um, and so you know, we are quite familiar with it. And it's, you know, the, the core technologies are all the same. Um, for speech synthesis, Chinese is a little bit different because it's a tonal language. And the larger character set as well brings in some of its own challenges as well as they, in Chinese, they don't have space characters between words. So when you get a string of Chinese text, the first thing you need to figure out is what are the words here? Where do you insert the spaces? Um, but for speech recognition, the technology stack is essentially the same. What would you change? So we acquired language like 100,000 years ago. And then, and you know, so just talking about English, you know, the whole path and and how it kind of got to where it is. What are things about English that make it uniquely difficult? Uh, is it homophones? Is it... Uh, I think like- the biggest challenge with English is that the, the written form of English and how it's pronounced 
um, aren't really as well connected as many native speakers think they are. Um, whereas for many languages, if you see how a word is spelt, it's very easy to predict how, how is it going to be pronounced. Whereas in English, that's not really the case at all. Um, there's quite a lot of words that come from influences of different languages, be they from, you know, from French or wherever else. Um, and I think so, as it is in English today, um, even calculating how to pronounce words remains still quite a big academic problem. You know, people try to fight it with large data sets where how every word is pronounced is kind of specified manually um, when the system's been built. Um, whereas, you know, for other languages, for many other languages, including Chinese, even once you have the written form, um, you can generally calculate, you know, quite easily calculate how would that be pronounced. So then talk to me about the fourth lag on this table, which is voice emulation. So you had said that there's kind of an uncanny valley effect that if it's just a little bit off, it sounds, you know, it sounds wrong. Yeah, they may. So, you know, these systems generate audio um, and they do it where they, you know, their intention is that the audio will contain a speech signal and nothing else. Um, but in practice, they're generating audio. So any, you know, any errors in that generation may result in random noises in the audio, you know, glitches or other things. Um, it may be distortions, it may be it'll mispronounce a word, uh, where, you know, in certain cases, changing a single sound in a word can change the meaning of a sentence very dramatically. And also, you know, for them to do a good job, they really need to understand the meaning of the words they're saying. Um, whereas, you know, if you just pronouncing words on, its, on, on their own without, without any understanding of the meaning um, will result in a speech signal that could sound very human-like, but at the same time, um, you know, native, native speakers will notice that, you know, something sounds just a bit off about it. It's not delivered in a very natural way. And so how do you solve that problem long-term? Like, what, what, are, what are the kind of best practices? Um, the, well, currently, the, way, the best way to approach it is if, you, you know, if you've got a good understanding of where that system is going to be used. So, again, not a one-size-fits-all system, but, you know, you know, maybe in a certain case you want, to, you want to be able to generate computer voices that will say things similar to what a, a store assistant may say. Um, generally, generally, in that case, it makes a lot of sense to, you know, record a data set of things a store assistant would say, maybe even rec record a store assistant while they're working so you can kind of see what kind of prosody they use. Um, and then from that, you'd, you'd build your AI with the knowledge of this is kind of how a human in this situation would speak to someone. Um, whereas traditionally, even, even now for many of the computer voices we hear today, uh, many of them are... I guess, kind of close to being pre-recorded where they would have tens of thousands of audio clips recorded in advance and they're kind of just stitching the words together. Um, but even when they record the audio, they're recording it with the use case in mind. So if it's a voice on a GPS system like SatNav, you know, the audio it speaks to you with, that was trained off audio recordings of people reading SatNav type instructions. Um, but in them cases, it can sound quite natural and it can sound quite good. With those four technologies, the ability to recognize words, to understand them, to manage the dialogue, and then emulate voice, I can think of kind of three, let's say we get really good at it, all of them, let's say we get a lot really good at them, I can think of probably three cases off the top of my head, or three ways that can be terribly misused. Uh, I'm sure you can think of more, but if we could go through each of them, I would appreciate getting, getting your thoughts on them. So the first 
uh, is of course privacy. You know, when you think about all the cell phone traffic in the world, we we most of us uh, are lucky because we uh, there's so much data that nobody can listen to all the conversations. Mm-hmm. Now somebody can listen to all the conversations, understand them, interpret them, and so forth. So that I I assume you agree that that is a potential misuse. What are your what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it's, I mean, I think it's even going back 20, 30 years, government agencies did tend to fund a lot of the university research in uh, speech recognition. Um, And so I assume kind of use cases like that where may have been what they had in mind. Um, It is, uh, I think this, you know, it kind of also touches on this point of, you know, many cases where AI adds real value is that it can just scale far more than people where you could have an AI that can transcribe um, all the content of all calls that are happening right now. Um, and again, I imagine in, in certain parts of the world, then type of systems are probably in place. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I don't think there's much that we can really do about it. It's kind of inevitable, I think. You know, at some point, it's, it's going to just become normal if it isn't already. So then the second one is, I, I read, the, or I came across this site where you could type in dialogue and you could pick, uh, in this particular case, it could be said in, in Hillary Clinton's voice or Donald Trump's voice. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, you, you knew it wasn't them clearly, but it was, it was, you know, kind of like interesting because all you have to do is say, well, there's a Moore's Law on this and I'm, It'll be twice as good, twice as good, twice as good, twice as good, twice as good. And then all of a sudden, you know, hearing isn't believing anymore and, and kind of, mm-hmm. uh, yep. so the whole fake news aspect of it, what do you think about that? Yeah, so that's, to really do that well, um, current technologies can do that well. Um, there's only two companies in the world that have that capability as far as I know. Uh, one of them is Google and the other is Voices. And it uses a technology called WaveNet. If you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it already, but if you search for it, and you can come across some great examples of it. Um, and it will sound very, very convincingly human, um, particularly if you're just you know, reading a sentence. If you need to read longer amounts of text, um, then you hit this kind of problem I mentioned earlier where it may sound like the system doesn't really understand what it's saying, um, but it will sound very convincingly human and far better than the, the samples you're referring to of the Hillary Clinton voices or so on. Um, and that, you know, that technology does exist today. And there, naturally, there's con- security concerns with that type of technology because, obviously, if if it fell into the wrong hands, I guess, um, you know, people could make phone calls with the identity of somebody else, um, which could obviously have quite a, a dramatic impact on various things, be it at, you know, corporate level or at government level. Um, and again, I, I think this is kind of, a, you know, a, a side effect of AI in general that we're going to see, you know, machines being better or as good at, as people at doing various tasks. So you think that's also inevitable that... Oh, I think it's already w- there. When my dad calls me and uh, asks me my PIN number or whatever, uh, I'll be like, I don't know, are you... What, what did you get me for my ninth birthday? Kind of, I have to QA them. Could you imagine, though, a piece of technology... Like, let me ask it of you. If somebody gave you a piece of audio that they recorded and say, can you figure out if this is a human or a computer? Could you figure it out? And, or will you, would, could you imagine a tool that no matter how good it gets, could still tell 
that it was not real audio, not a human. I, I, I was having a chat with some professors about this exact question about two weeks ago, and uh, everyone at the table uh, unanimously agreed that that's not possible in our opinions. So I think I don't think it'll like I know there is a lot of there's a very big voice biometric industry right now, um, but I don't really believe that computers cannot generate signals that will successfully by bypass them systems. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. So have um, do, do a Google search for WaveNet if you're not familiar with it. You'll see some audio samples from both Google and Voices. And the Voices the audio samples do sound very convincingly human, and they can be used to mimic uh, people's voices as well. Well, the interesting thing is, is if you ask it about an image, you know, we can do a pretty good job of you take a photograph and can you tell if this was generated entirely by a machine or if it's actually a photograph? There's all kinds of nuance in it and gradients. And I mean, there's so many clues internal to it. Uh, are you saying that there isn't an equivalent richness to speech? You just don't have as many dimensions of light and color and shadow and all of that? Or are you saying, no, even with video, you, I mean, even with video and images? Uh, well, image, image is a lot easier than video. Um, I would think if you got one of the stronger AI teams in the world today and asked them to build a system that would produce, you know, convincing images in that sense, um, that, you know, certainly there's several teams out there that could do it. And video tends to be a lot more difficult just because of its because of the complexity of it, and where video is essentially hundreds or thousands of images. Um, and so just to, I'd say really the challenge there or the barrier there is probably more compute power um, than any technologies that you know than you know the lack of technology, for example. So my third question, my third area of concern is a topic I bring up a lot on the show, which is Weizenbaum and Eliza. So, you know, back in the 60s, uh, Weizenbaum made this program called Eliza. It was a really simple chat bot that it would tell, you know, tell the, uh, you, would, you would ask it, tell it you were having problems and it would ask you very rudimentary questions. And Weizenbaum saw all these people get emotionally attached to it and he pulled the plug on it. He said, yeah, that's wrong. It's just wrong. You know, he said, when the computer says, I understand, it's just a lie because there's nothing, there's no I and there's nothing that understands anything. So do you think it's a concern that when you can understand perfectly, you can engage in complex dialogue the way you're talking about, and it can sound exactly like a human, that Weizenbaum's worst fears have kind of come about, and we haven't really, we haven't really ennobled the machines because they're still just, it's just still a lie. Do you have any concerns about that or not? It's, well, the way I look at it is, I think when the day comes where these systems can speak and understand and interact with people in many languages in a very kind of human and natural way, it will enable, it'll improve the lives of billions of people on the globe. Um, some people will, you know, particularly people who don't need them technologies may say, you know, they'd rather not use it or may not like kind of speaking to a, a piece of plastic, essentially, as if it's a person. Um, but right now there is, you know, for many people in the world, access to information is still a huge problem. Um, you know, mu much more so if you look in, I guess, many developing countries, like yeah, I think even in, in India, um, they have over 1,100 languages. Um, so even if certain people go to a doctor, they may not speak the language that the doctor speaks. Um, 
there's many communication problems globally. Um, these technologies will dramatically improve the lives of so many people. Um, you know, people who don't want to speak to these devices as if they're a human don't have to. And I think, well, it's, there's probably more benefits than cons, I think, on that kind of front. Um, well, just, just taking a minute with that. I mean, obviously, I'm not, I'm not talking anything about like, oh, we don't want people in India to understand uh, other, I mean, nothing like that. I mean, you've got like, if you look to science fiction, you have kind of three levels. You have uh, C-3PO, right? And he just talked like a person. I mean, it was just Anthony Daniels talking. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing, and then you get uh, Star Trek with Commander Data, and mm -hmm. you know it's Brent Spiner, but he deliberately acted it in a way where Data didn't use contractions. I am first in all, or you know, he didn't uh, have emotion in his voice, but it was still mm -hmm. human. And then you think of something like, I mean, in, innumerable examples like I don't know, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, you had Twiggy, and it was clearly a mechanical voice that. Um, and so all three of them would solve your use case of understanding. The question is twofold. Is, do you have a feeling on which one of those long-term people will want? Will they want to always know they're speaking to a machine? Yeah, uh, I think so. so. I think it's, in my opinion, the people want communication to be frictionless or effortless. You know, it shouldn't feel that you need to concentrate hard on what's the machine trying to say to me or, you know, did it understand me or not with these types of things. Um, so even if you, ha you know, if you have a machine that speaks in a very natural and almost human-like way, um, I think many people would like it to have kind of some artifact there that just makes them aware that it's actually a machine. So um, where does that leave you with the technology you're building that you said uh, is trying to get that last 1% to sound like a human? Is that... What's the use case for that, or what's the the commercial demand for it? So I, I think right now you have many of the you know the computer voices we hear um, from you know various products that are out there are incredibly robotic, and it does take quite a lot of effort to listen to them. Especially if you try to listen to something like an audiobook, and um, they tend to be very monotonous and just it almost um, you know it's tiring to listen to them. Um, and that's really what this technology ad addresses. Um, and it's not that it has to be deployed in a way where it sounds convincingly human, um, it just can be deployed that way. So if people have a preference to, you know, to listen to it in a way where it's, it has some kind of something in the signal where it still should, you know, it shouldn't be tiring to listen to, um, you know, they, they can do that. There's no technology barrier to doing that even today. So when I think of, you know, I mentioned the Uncanny Valley earlier, which is this, that you don't want your drawings of people to look just, one notch below perfect, otherwise they look grotesque, that you definitely want to, you know, dial them down several notches. Is there an equivalent in audio in your mind that if it's just a little bit too close, it will, or, or do you kind of think it, it ought to go as far as it can, that that's what people want right now, or that it should just get to like 95% and stop, that that's more what people want right now? I think the way machines will speak will always be different, but it doesn't mean they have to. They don't have to. They shouldn't sound natural. So, for example, when you and I talk, there is plenty of times we'd say, you know, fillers like mm, uh, you know, these different noises that also kind of that makes our speech natural. Uh, whereas for machines, there's no need for them to do that. Um, you know, they can control you can control the even the speaking rate and various things that 
would make them not be speaking naturally in the human sense, um, but they could still be speaking in a way that's very easy for anyone to follow, very easy to understand, you know, engaging. They don't need to always sound, you know, like today, many of these systems, especially the older generation ones, um, you know, many of them sound, they do sound incredi- incredibly robotic. You know, they're tiring to listen to. It takes quite a lot of effort. Um, you know, people listen to them when they have no other choice, really. And whereas with these new waves, the new wave of technology with wave nets, um, it's enabling these systems just to sound you know, just much nicer to listen to. So if you take something like, um, uh, let's say, um, a soliloquy from Shakespeare, uh, uh, um, something like, Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I have come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good, the good is often turned with their bones. So when I say that as a human, I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing words. I'm stretching words out. I'm making other words fast. I'm inserting pauses. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Can you do that? Do you think you will get to a point where you could feed it that that passage and it would do an equivalent reading and not even worrying about whether the tonal quality is, is perfect, but can, could it do all of that other stuff I just did? So we Forbes published an article with some audio samples from our WaveNet system that did exactly that. Although it was reading uh, black beauty, um, just reading the first, maybe the first 20, 30 sentences of black beauty. And it was kind of, you know, it's, these systems can sound quite natural, but, you know, that the system that did that, which did sound very natural, it was trained off audio of somebody reading audiobooks. It wasn't, you know, a general system that, you know, could be used for, for different cases. So I think current systems still need the training data to be quite close to the application. Otherwise, the level of naturalness, you know, diminishes very, very quickly. But you... So how do you do that? Like, I mean, I know we can't understand it, especially in, in the context of this, but how, how do you do it? Is it word pairs that you're looking for? Or do, does, are, are words classified by their definition, whether they're angry words or like, how does it work? So in, in practice, I think we found that, you know, within a certain domain. So if you take audiobooks, for example, um, the, way, the way, you know, a single person would read a book, um, there's various patterns around how they express certain things, especially, you know, for this, the system itself needs to consider more than a sentence. It can't just be reading, you know, individual sentences, which again is what many of these modern systems do. You know, it needs to really think in terms of paragraph or in terms of, you know, the, the overall context uh, with which it's working within. Um, and like certainly predicting pauses or kind of breath type sounds, these systems will do that quite naturally as is. Um, and in the, I think in the case of books, it's probably more about timing than anything else. Um, the pitch is, I think, is probably easier in books than it is in, you know, you know, certain bits of pitch are at least easier in books than they are in other domains, I think. Um, which I, if you haven't heard of it, I, I highly recommend you to have, have a listen to the sample we published um, or Forbes published that we didn't um, of our WaveNet system. And it is reading a book, so it's really the exact use case you're, you're talking about here. And you know, we got so, great feedback on pe- from people saying how, how eerily human it sounded, I think was the term Forbes used. Eerily, I assume eerily in the sense that the technology is eerie, not that it sounded eerie. Yes. <laughs> um, so there are audio clips um, of, of J.R. Tolkien reading from his writings. I think there's Hemingway reading some part 
of what he wrote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could, I think it would be great to hear Hemingway read uh, The Old Man on the Sea. So how much Hemingway reading something he wrote would you need to make a convincing Hemingway reading Old Man of the Sea? Is it a minute? Is it an hour? Well, like what would... A lot more. To do, to do it really well with current technologies, you need a lot more data. Like, so the one, the one we published used 10 hours of one person reading, uh, which I think was maybe a bit over two audiobooks. So if somebody had an unabridged recording of the Fellowship of the Ring, then the Two Towers, and they died, you could make a passable Return of the King. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, right. And I, I think that that data requirement will just go down over time. Um, but currently, that's so that, who, 10 hours is the entry level, I think. Legally speaking, who owns that right now? Just kind of what would be the state of the so, art, either in Ireland where you are or, or anywhere you know of? Who? It's, it's a good question. Um, so I, th- I think uh, voice talents you know, constantly encamp- encounter this, um, where you know, in many ways, even if, if you pay a voice talent to record an audiobook, for example, um, you know, that, them audio recordings do contain that person's identity to some extent. Um, and so I think it's very hard to classify who actually owns audio in that sense when, you know, if the audio is of a person speaking and it does contain their identity, just like if someone takes a, you know, a photo of, of you or I, um, we can probably lay, have some kind of entitlement of claiming ownership over it if it is a photo of us, um, regardless of whatever payments were made. Um, and so I, I assume... It's a gray area. But that's, right. not, that's not got to do with AI technologies. That's even for... You know, if you're recording a, you know, a, a radio commercial, um, it's a legal gray area too as to ha- how much of the audio recordings can you own when it's clearly, clearly has someone, someone's identity in it. You can't really own someone's identity. Right. I guess the, the question at law, which somebody will have to decide at some point, is if you pay somebody for a recording and then you own that recording, presumably you own all the derivative things you I mean, like you said, it's a gray area. We don't know. And I'm sure regulators will, and case law will eventually sort it out. Yeah. I, mean, huh. I, I, I imagine like we could end, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up in a, in a world where particularly maybe celebrities could do endorsements of, you know, kind of audio clips for radio or for various other things and um, where the audio is completely generated by machine where the celebrity didn't need to go to a recording studio for a day to, record you know record that um audio i think that you know that day is not that long away you know it's 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 a it's a world that with lots of questions i was just reading about this company that takes old syndicated tv shows and figures out ways to insert modern product placement in them and then they can go (laughs) sell that right isn't that something so all of a sudden you can have uh i mean this isn't a real example but you could have you know uh lucy drinking a red ball and i love lucy or something like that right like Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's all ones and zeros at some level. So I gave three areas as technology could be misused that just came to me. There's the fake news, there's invasion of privacy, and there's this dehumanizing Weizenbaum Eliza aspect. What did I, what did I miss? Oh, um, I, I think that the general concern I've heard in academic circles always tends to be about privacy. Um, and you, you kind of cover that one, so um, yeah, no, nothing so, springs to mind. Talk to us a minute about uh, so you have a platform that people can use, and when, and what I've noticed you emphasizing over and over is 
the platform needs to be trained to a purpose. If, if, if you're a tennis shoe company, it needs to be, have, be taught with tennis shoe content about tennis shoe related issues and that it, that it's, they're all highly verticalized or they have to be customized. So is, I assume that's the case. If so, what does that process look like? And then where, where are you on your product trajectory? Like, what are you going to do next? How are you going to wow us in a year when you come back on the show? So the, yeah, so on the website, we're talking about this uh, new product that we launched, I think, two weeks ago now in New York uh, called Voices Commerce. And the way it really works is we've built out the whole commerce use case, you know, through user studies and building up an understanding of what do consumers actually want to say to a retailer or a brand while they're looking at their uh, website or mobile app. Um, and we build out that use case in a way where today any retailer or brand can just, you know, take their product catalog. Uh, which is like the names of their products, whatever descriptions they have from the, the product pages on the products. And they upload it to us. And then fully automatically in a matter of hours, um, a voice AI is created, um, which knows what products they sell. It, it's, it's learned from the natural language descriptions on their product pages about how their products are described. Um, so that when a user comes along and says, you know, I want, a, I want red tennis shoes with, whatever, maybe, you know, certain features on them. The user can just say that using completely natural language and get relevant search results. And then I think where it gets really interesting is when the user does get relevant search results on the screen in front of them, um, they can do a re refinement query. So they can just give maybe, you know, do a follow-up query where they're, you know, adding more details about what they're looking for. So maybe they do their initial search for 10 issues or whatever they're looking for. When they see the search results on the screen, they, then they can say, Actually, I only want to spend about you know $50. What have you got around that price? And let's see, again, you know, the search results being updated. Um, and they can continuously just provide more and more details, maybe change their mind on certain details. Like they could say, you know, what if I was to increase my budget by $50? What would, you know, what would the products be then? And they can just interact with it in this kind of, I guess, far more powerful way than what people are used to with keyword-based search. Um, and I think the, one of the kind of side effects then for the retailers is that they get a much better understanding of what their customers are actually looking for, you know, what their customers want. Um, because currently, you know, many retailers and e-commerce brands are doing a lot of data analytics, but really what they're analyzing is what keywords have people searched into a box or what buttons have they clicked on, whereas natural language is obviously not constrained. Um, and so they can get a lot of value out of understanding their customers better and in turn provide a much better experience for their customers as well. Well, fantastic. I'm going to assume I really am speaking to the real Peter Cahill that is not somebody else at the company with using the mimic thing, and this will be in the next Forbes article. Yeah. Um, that's but a good if, idea. Do that at some point. <laughs> they, that's, somebody can do all these for you. So uh, if people want to keep up with you personally and what your company's doing, uh, can you just run down that? Yes. Yeah, so it's, well, uh, both me and the company are quite active on Twitter. So it's at Voices on Twitter or at Peter Cal on Twitter. Um, or obviously, if anyone ever wants to drop me a mail, uh, please do. You can just reach me at pc at voices.com. And Voices is V-O-Y-S-I-S. Yes. All right, Peter, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this very fascinating topic. Yep, thank you. Enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice, 
And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.